When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Social Security is one of the most complex and confusing federal programs. With over 2,700 rules, it's no wonder that we're confused about when and how to start collecting and who to turn to for help. Welcome to Social Security Answers from the Experts, hosted by Martha Shedden. In this podcast series, Martha meets with professionals to provide you with the answers to questions about this most important financial decision. And now, here's your host, President and co-founder of the National Association of Registered Social Security Analysts, Martha Shedden. Welcome to our podcast. I'm Martha Shedden, and today I am so pleased to have a very special guest with me on the show, Bill Arnone. Bill is currently the Chief Executive Officer of the National Academy of Social Insurance and was a founding board member of NASI back in 1986. He previously served as chair of the Academy's Board of Directors. Nancy Altman, who was a founding member and current Academy board member, said, having known Bill since the mid-1980s when Bob Ball asked both of us to join him in creating the National Academy of Social Insurance, I've witnessed firsthand Bill's many talents and strengths. These include his deep knowledge and abilities honed by his legal training, his work as a partner in one of the nation's premier accounting firms to develop well-reasoned, incisive, and thoughtful analyses of complex matters, and his knack for finding common ground together with his deep commitment of principle. Bill has published numerous articles on retirement, particularly focusing on Social Security and Medicare, and has written for the Huffington Post. New York Times, and Washington Post. He has extensive experience in organizational work with the aging, including several New York state delegations to the White House Conference on Aging. So, Bill, I am so pleased to have you on the show. Arthur, thank you. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. I appreciate it. Nancy is an old colleague and friend, and I uh, very much appreciate what she said. Yes, I, I love what she said. Um, so I'd like to start at the beginning. I You have a BA in political science yes. from Fordham College and a JD from New York University Law School. Where did your interest in political science and law start? Were you planning to practice law or how did you, what were you thinking when you first went to college? Yeah, it was clearly uh politics was an early passion of mine. In fact, you can see over my shoulder a bust of uh, Robert F. Kennedy. I had the privilege of working for him right. uh, when I was a sophomore at Fordham, a political science major. He sent his staff up to talk to all of us, and the staff said, you can study political science, or you can do politics. If you want to do politics, come to our office and we'll put you to work. And I said, you know what? Why not? I adored President Kennedy. I didn't know Robert very well. I'd met him a couple of times. I showed up and I got hooked and I was doing 17 hour days. I was what was called a constituent case aide. People would call his office with problems. My doctor won't take Medicare. My landlord is not uh, helping with my apartment. And I would be his voice to respond to people in desperate need. And that was my taste of how you could use politics for good on behalf of those who had no voice. And that was really what inspired me, helping the voiceless be heard and get results. And he, his name would get results. I would call people up on his behalf and they would act immediately. So that got me hooked. And then after what happened with his presidential campaign, I was deeply involved in that. Um, I just said, okay, I, I need to uh, carry on. Um, I was devastated, but I felt, and then it was just a natural political science majors we were kind of all channeled to go to law school. I said, okay, I'm not really sure I want to be a lawyer, but I'd like to give it a shot. And I got the JD and I never practiced law a day in my life. 
It just teaches said, you to think in a certain way, though, a very it taught, it teaches, I, I've been told uh, younger people today when I counsel them, should I go for my master's in business or should I go for my JD? I say, go for the JD. I think wow. it's a much more valuable degree. It's a much more insightful educational experience. Yes, it's an extra year. And that could change, by the way. There's a movement to get law school down to two years instead of three. Huh. But I recommend it. And for me, I loved it. My three years in NYU, I learned a lot. I did a lot of clinical work in the real world. It wasn't simply academic. But I knew um, I do not want to spend a moment in a law firm. That's not me. Uh, but it really interesting. was eye Interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, that was my next question. I was going to touch on your time uh, with Robert F. Kennedy's Senate office. And then you did work on his presidential campaign. So um, this exposure to politics at that young of an age really had a, a personal influence on it you. It really did. And if you, any of you uh, have Netflix, uh, there's a show I'm very proud of called Bobby Kennedy for President. And it talks about what I did along with the six others uh, for him and, and during his Senate and, cam- and presidential campaign. It's four hours, uh, but I oh. recommended him. Uh, it's still out there. You know, I'm, Netflix usually purges these programs after a year or so, and mine is still on there. I'm very proud of it, but it's a, it's a good look at what was going on. Not so much Robert Kennedy or me, what was going on in our country right. back then? Right. Uh, my daughter will often say, Daddy, has it ever been this bad? And I go, you want to hear bad? Let uh-huh. me tell you about 1968. That was bad. In a way, this is bad in a different sense, but look back then, a war riots, assassinations, the country was coming apart, a a counterculture. We've been through a lot as a nation. And uh, I think we have to learn from history. How did we get out of it? And what does it mean going forward? Hopefully that's going to be helping us now. I think so. I think so. Yeah. So uh, then early in your career, you were a national director of financial and retirement planning services for Buck Consultants. And you had a 15-year career at Ernst & Young, where you were responsible for all facets of retirement, financial education, and counseling in employer-sponsored programs. Um, why did you go to Ernst & Young? As a, I mean, I think of them as an accounting firm. And was that just an opportunity for you to work in retirement income policy and planning? First of all, Ernst & Young has the biggest... Uh, tax law practice in the country. <laughs> uh, people are shocked because it's not only accountants. But my career at Buck, I was an attorney working with actuaries. Uh-huh. At EY, I was an attorney working with accountants. So the three A's kind of do go together, actuaries, accountants. Especially when you come to Social Security, those three disciplines are yeah. intimately involved in Social Security policy. So it was a natural. Um, I thought after working for Robert Kennedy, and then I spent the bulk of my first part of my life in public service, government programs. I thought I'd be a lifelong government employee. But then Ronald Reagan got elected and a little voice said to me, this may not be the right time to be in government. So I put a toe in the consulting waters at Buck and 30 years later, I got out. But um, uh, I really enjoyed being in the private sector. And a lot of the work I did was to help rank and file employees of large corporations understand things like social security. Medicare, unemployment insurance, 401k plans, pension plans, all the ingredients that go into what we call financial well-being. That's what I devoted my life to. And I must say, I was not encouraged uh, by how people responded to the attempt to educate them. And it was Why uh, is that? They didn't want to learn? It was, uh, and I can't blame them. Employers would pay Ernst & Young to do this for the employees. The employees didn't have to pay a cent. So this was workshops, software, publications, and access to a financial planner on the line by telephone, no limit. We gave them everything they need to equip them. But at the end of all the encounters they had with us, you know what they would say? I know a lot more now. Thank you. Now tell me what to do. They wanted to be told what to do. We didn't do that. We said, we'll educate you, but we're not advising you. You have to take ownership. And it was very discouraging. They wanted to be told what to do. And they didn't take ownership. No. Mm. One of the things that haunted me was when all is said and done, 
what difference did we make? And I would ask clients, you know, I'd like to think that we're having an effect. We do evaluations after each encounter, the employees rave about us. I said, but has their behavior changed? I couldn't get one corporate client. These are the big boys, Fortune 50, to do a study on what the employees do after they encountered us. They would say something like, I'm going to put more money into my 401k. So I said, well, I want to know, did they? And we could never find out. And that was haunting me because, you know, I, I'm, I'm a realist. I want to know, did they just say things to be nice or did they do something? And we couldn't tell. And that was a real flaw, I thought, in the whole, the whole employee well-being yeah. approach. It doesn't go to the of complete accountability of the, for results. Right. I mean, you see it today in the lack of retirement savings and the whole experiment of having our self-employed, uh, self-funded retirement. I mean, that's just not working. And I started my career at Buck in 1981. That was the year the 401k provision was discovered. It was revolutionary, the defined contribution right. revolution. But right. I remember saying I, it works as a supplement to a defined benefit plan. But should it supplant a defined benefit plan? You could hear from the tone of my voice. My view was absolutely not. Um, it can't be either or. It's got to be both working in tandem and then Social Security being the other component. So I think the revolution got off to a, a false premise. And I think we've paid a price in terms of retirement insecurity. The 401k yeah. experiment, uh, if I had to judge it, I would say it was a failed experiment. Yeah, I'm, we're seeing the results of that now for those of us that were first exposed to that when we started our careers and, um, um, and not paying attention to our retirement soon enough. That's discouraging that you can educate and educate because I'm all about education, but um, people don't want to know about social security or retirement planning until they're almost there. And then it's You're absolutely right. Too that's late. right. I, uh, my biggest right. concern is the younger workers today, millennials, generation yeah. C, when I talk to them, they all say, I'm thankful for Social Security. It was great for my mother and father, great for grandma and grandpa. For me, I don't count on it. No. And that's not good. It's not. I know. That's a, a big goal of mine is how do you get that younger generation engaged? Um, so tell our listeners and, and me about the National Academy of Social Insurance. What, what's its purpose? What were you thinking in 1986 when that was formed? The um, initiators of it, these are legends for anybody who is listening or watching and has kept up with Social Security policy. We had legends, Robert M. Ball, Social Security Commissioner through several presidents, totally bipartisan. He could talk to Republicans and Democrats, bring them together. He was our model. He was our founding chair. We had a guy named Robert Myers, the premier actuary of his time. Uh, and just to show you the two Bobs, how different they were, Bob Ball was Mr. Democrat. Bob Myers was Mr. Republican. So the Academy got off to a truly bipartisan uh, start. We had Wilbur Cohen, the godfather of Medicare. We had a woman, Elizabeth Wickenden, one of the unsung heroines of social security in the United States, who had her hand in everything but never wanted visibility. Uh, we had a guy named Bert Seidman, Mr. Labor. It was an amazing uh, group of creators. And here I am with Nancy Altman, with a guy named Eric Kingston. We're these kids who are saying, what are we doing in the room with these legends? But they were haunted by the boomer generation. Bob Ball said to me, you boomers don't get it. And if you don't get it, you're 76 million. These programs are in trouble. Here we are saying the same thing, 80 million millennials. If they don't get it, we're in trouble. So there's a generational challenge with these programs. People have to understand them. They have to know why we have them. I say, imagine a world without them. And then how do you keep it going? And that's the challenge. Every generation has this challenge. Generation X, President Bush, hey, look, you can do better on your own. I'm going to yeah. let you get out of it, right? That was a challenge. They, they overcame the challenge. They said, no, thanks. Who knows what the challenge will be for the millennials and for Generation Z? But we have to, our purpose is to keep the American public educated so they understand why these programs exist and are prepared to fight for them. Yes. They're, they're political programs. They, 
right. a result of, of struggle, right? When you look at the history of Social Security, yeah. they don't happen overnight. They don't happen out of goodwill. It, it takes a fight. So that's what we're there. But we're nonpartisan. And we're not advocates. Uh, we inform the advocates, but we don't advocate ourselves. So if you look at our reports, we lay out policy options. We analyze them. What do they mean? Who would benefit? Who would not benefit? What are their trade-offs? But then we let others say, okay, I support A. I don't support B. Uh-huh. I'm not sure about C. So we stop short of advocacy, which really makes us unique in Washington. Right. But I've, I've downloaded and am using your your presentation that just came out for a continuing education course it's it's full of wonderful statistics and details and just really really informative so in the mission states you are advancing solutions to challenges facing the nation by increasing public understanding of how social insurance contributes to economic security when we say social insurance Besides Social Security, what else are we talking about? There are four core programs, Social Security, Medicare, unemployment insurance, and workers' compensation. Those are the four pillars of Socialism in the United States. Now, we, because we're forward-looking, we uh, issued a report in 2017, and we had a section called New Frontiers in Social Insurance. These were risks the American people were facing that social insurance had not addressed yet. We identified among those risks caregiving, which Uh is now probably the most significant issue affecting everyone. Uh, We had a conference in June of 2019. I asked the audience, raise your hand if you're currently receiving care. Raise your hand if you're currently providing care. Raise your hand if you're currently paying for care. And raise your hand if at some point in your life you think you'll need care. By the end of that fourth question, every hand was raised. This is for the older generation. No, no. The whole, uh, it was a a multi-generational audience. A lot of millennials are caring for their grandparents. We don't talk about it that way. Or they're paying for it. Uh, Or they know that someday they will need it themselves. So we thought caregiving was a unifying issue. It was right for a social insurance approach. So we put that in. We also looked at the changing world of work, how so many people are in the so-called gig economy, where very often they are working off the books. Mm -hmm. They're not paying it to Social Security. And then we came up with a concept that went back, and I love history. In 1935, President Roosevelt formed the Committee on Economic Security. To me, it's one of the landmark... uh, governmental uh, efforts in our lifetimes and beyond our lifetimes. And they had an overarching goal. You know what the goal was? Assured income from birth to death. And we said, whatever happened to that goal, right? Assured income. So no matter what happens to you in life, there's a floor below which no American should fall. So we've made that an overarching framework of everything we do is the uh, aspirational goal of providing a short income from many different routes, Social Security, SSI, 401k plans, income tax plans, uh, health care, so that every American knows, okay, no matter how rough life is, I'm not going to fall below a certain floor. And that's what we're trying to promote throughout the country. That is just such a, a, wonderful, a wonderful goal. I, I wish that were true. It's aspirational. It's not easy. We'll be issuing a massive report early next year. We have an economic security study panel. Their mandate was to, how do we get there? It's uh-huh. going to be, a, I think, a very uh, eclectic report. It's not ideological, but it's driven by this notion of the ultimate goal being a short income at every stage in life. Not only the elderly. I hate to use the word only because elderly is important. Or not only children, but uh-huh. at every stage in life. And we can do it. I'm convinced as a country, we can do this. Good, good. Um, So what do people misunderstand about social insurance programs and how they contribute to both individual and collective, collective economic security? Right. I think they make two extreme mistakes. On the one hand, they think it'll do everything. On the other hand, they think it'll do nothing. (laughs) The truth is in between. 
Medicare is a good example. People say, well, once I'm on Medicare, I'm going to have all my health care covered. Well, guess what? Uh, no. No program covers it all. So part of it is dispelling the myths. You know the old the Will Rogers saying, it's not what I don't know that's the problem. It's what I know that's absolutely false. That's the problem. And a lot of people say, oh, yeah, I know. I can get Social Security at 60. No, unless you're disabled. Or uh, Medicare pays for long-term care. No, it doesn't. No. So we have to uh, get people to unlearn what they really never learned. They just assumed. To me, that's a huge problem in public understanding. So it's two extremes. The extreme where they say, I'm not going to count them in for anything. That's And when, when I was at um, Ernst & Young, I would talk to financial planners. You know what they would say to me? We start the planning process by saying to our clients, let's not include Social Security at all. And I said, how could you do that? I mean, to me, that's almost malpractice, right? How could you start a plan, say a retirement plan, and not count Social Security at all? Well, it's too uncertain. I go, no, no. If nothing goes right, we'll still have money coming in to pay 75% of guaranteed benefits, of, of, of uh, scheduled benefits. So zero, I mean, I could see maybe not 100% of today's benefits, but to say zero, and they would say it, Martha, would almost like, I'm very fashionable. I tell my clients, you don't oh, have to count on such. I said, that's a terrible mistake. That's, so we have a, I hate mistake. to admit that, but a decade ago when I was first introduced in detail to Social Security, that really kind of was my thinking. I thought, well, it's not this, it's just this monthly check. You know, it's not that much. I had no concept of what that was going to amount to for 20 or 30 years. And I was so shocked and I, and I'm right in the middle of the baby boomers and I, I couldn't believe how uninformed I was and how all the things I thought were true were not true. Yep. yep. I, I but just, to me, the biggest myth is the millennial myth. It's not going to be there for me. Right. It's running out of money and the media doesn't help. No. Every year the trustees come out with a report. The media focuses on the trust fund. The trust fund is not the whole program. They make it sound like trust funds are gone in 2034. Goodbye, Social Security. So yeah. the Academy, about 15 years ago, we went around the country and we did seminars for financial planning reporters to say, look, you're misinforming your readers. And I'd like to think it made some difference, but it's still it's very pervasive how the media covers Social Security. And, and now Medicare, there's a big outcry now, the Medicare premiums are going up much higher than anyone expected. And that has come as a total surprise. And the question is why, how did this happen? And I must say, this is a, this is a big concern because it's uh, scaring the daylights out of people. Yeah. Well, healthcare for retirees is the most, the scariest thing that I talk to clients about. It's the biggest unknown. Um, It's just, it's frightening. And Related to that, my next question is about COVID. So on your website, you have a whole page dedicated to COVID-19's interplay with the social insurance program. So how has COVID-19 affected programs such as Social Security? And what does the future of these effects look like in your opinion? So the bulk of the Academy's work, we conduct through what we call study panels and task forces. We are really good at convening experts with different perspectives. We established the COVID-19 task force as soon as COVID uh, hit us. And it had two phases. The first phase were 13 top epidemiologists who were developing scenarios, best case, worst case, most likely case on COVID's trajectory. They did their work. Now we have a second phase that's called a policy translation working group. And they're doing what you just asked about. They're saying, okay, how did social insurance respond to the pandemic? What were its pluses? What were its minuses? What did we learn? And what must we do in anticipation of the next big catastrophe? It might be another pandemic. It might be a cybersecurity breakdown. It might be a climate change disaster. It could be a terrorist attack. Big shocks to our country, instead of being reactive, which we were in COVID, we were reactive. We have to be proactive. And this is what I love about the Academy, the ability 
to convene top thinkers who are working on this now. We'll issue that report sometime in 2022. I keep my fingers crossed it'll be in advance of the next big catastrophe. But I don't think anyone, Martha, doubts that there will be another one like this or maybe worse. What we don't know is when, the dimensions of it, but we've got to prepare our programs to be more responsive. So that's really a major part of the work we're doing now. I look forward to reading that, that's for sure. Um, in 2019, you collaborated with AARP in conducting a Social Security Policy Innovations Challenge with the purpose of surfacing uh, and disseminating creative and practical policy proposals that might improve retirement security. Um, without getting bogged down to too much detail, what were those proposals? How can retirement security be improved for those especially who must claim Social Security early? Yep. That, is, um, that was the driving force behind the challenge. And now we have a task force on older worker retirement security that's fleshing out the different options. Um, here's the big challenge. We have millions of people in the United States who are working in jobs they can no longer physically, or in some cases, mentally do. Right. But they can't afford to retire. They're either too young to start collecting Social Security, or if they're at the age of 62, as you know, you take a severe reduction if you start claiming benefits that early. And they're not disabled based on the strict disability definition that Social Security uses. What can we do for this group? Because there's lots of them. I thought, I bet you every one of your viewers or listeners knows someone who's in a job they really can't do. They're kind of hanging on. Right. What can we do to get them some benefit to help them bridge the gap between where they are now and when they could start collecting a a meaningful social security benefit. That's what we're focused on. Uh, could it be changes to the disability insurance program? Could it be a concept called a bridge benefit? We'll let you get part of your social security earlier than 62 uh, so you can get by. And then uh, later on, you'll make up for it if that's possible. Um, creative ways to make social security more relevant to those people who are just not eligible for a benefit today. So uh -huh. we've got a great task force. They're doing tremendous work. Their report will be coming out sometime next year as well. Great. By the way, I'd love it if it's possible. Uh, your listeners, your viewers, and you've got ideas. Um, if you want to give my email address, I would welcome people to reach out and say, did you think of this? Please do that. I was going to ask you at the end, but we'll do it a couple of times. What is your yeah, email Yeah, so I will give it to you now. It's W-A-R-N-O-N-E at N-A-S-I dot org. So it's my name, my initial, my last name at NASI, National Academy of Social Insurance.org. I read every email I get. I'll respond. Even though we are experts, um, there are a lot of people out there with great ideas, and they're not what you would call a social security expert. We want more voices to weigh in. And we're launching a campaign for Pathways to Economic Security, bringing more voices to the table. One of the things we have not done well as an academy is we've had an inside the beltway mentality. Well, you know, life doesn't begin and end in Washington. We want to hear from beneficiaries, frontline service providers, advocates who are operating what I call the real world to say, have you thought of this? How about thinking of that? It's we really are open to ideas. We don't have a monopoly on ideas. And someone who's not in in the, the weeds about it all is going to think outside the box and they exactly. might think that their ideas are crazy and wild, but they could be part of the answer. Absolutely. Not only uh, will their ideas be out of the box, how they talk about them. Let me give you an example. Um, we often would uh, in our report refer to vulnerable populations. We did a webinar and on the webinar was a lawyer who spent two years of her life living out of her parents' car. She was homeless. And she said, Bill, vulnerable? How dare you call me vulnerable? Look what I've been through. I know you mean well. That is so condescending. And I thought, my gosh, she's right. Would anybody want to be called vulnerable? 
So even the words we use, we have to translate policy jargon with sensitivity to the people we're describing because they don't recognize themselves in some of the words we use. Right. So I think that's a challenge uh, that we all have. And that's interesting because the next topic, I, what should people know about disparities among racial and ethnic groups when it comes to Social Security and other social insurance programs? Let's start with the history. The history of Social Security is uh, shameful. It began in 1935 deliberately excluding people of color. Not explicitly, but they ruled out domestic workers and farm workers who just happened to be predominantly people of color. Now, you might ask why. There are a lot of different explanations. The bottom line was they were excluded until the 1950s. Talk about a legacy, right? Why don't I know that? Uh, it was a, a, one of those dirty little secrets. Nobody so they were about. not... You said farm workers and who and domestic workers. They were wow. excluded from social. Now, uh, some say Franklin Roosevelt had to get this passed through a uh, Congress led by Southern Democrats. Oh. Uh, and therefore, he had to give in on things. But isn't that something? So talk about a legacy that needs to be overcome. The other thing we're finding out and shame on us for not knowing this sooner, how little racial and ethnic data we collect about these programs. The first step to understanding how they affect people is collecting data based on race and ethnicity. It's either not collected, it's collected in such a way that the data are not reliable, or it's collected, the data are reliable, but the data are not used. So we are committed as an academy to make this a major priority in social security, Medicare, workers' comp, unemployment insurance, all these programs collect meaningful data based on race and ethnicity so we can address disparities more intelligently. We know they're there. We don't need data to let us know they're there, but we have to know them in a granular way that we can fashion policies that address the real problem. And we have a long way to go, even on something like that. Wow. So you are really experienced at looking at uh, these issues, social security in terms of that high high view, the 30,000 foot view, but for individuals, soon to be retirees listening, what do you believe they can do to improve their economic retirement foundation that they may not be thinking of? I think when you uh, boil it all down to individual behavior, it is, first of all, understanding what is out there correctly. And our website can equip you. Uh, Social Security Administration does a great job. Uh, providing everything you need. When all is said and done, let me just take retirement. I think it's fair to say, knowing nothing about anyone in particular, there are probably three things people are doing wrong when it comes to retirement. And let's take a 401k plan as an example. You have a 401k plan at work. I will bet you most people, number one, are not putting enough in it. They're probably saying, well, I'll put in as much as my company matches. Matches, yeah. That's not enough. And knowing nothing about anybody, I would say, if you're not putting in at least 10%, mistake number one. Mistake number two, they're not investing it with an eye toward the long term. They're probably investing it in things that are safe in the short term, but provide no growth. And one of the things I would say when I was doing this with people, I'd say, Social Security is a retirement asset. It's a fixed income retirement asset. You've got a you've got a foundation. You can take more risks. That was a hard one to convince people. That's I thought, the first. That's the first thing you mentioned before about the uh, was it Ernst and Young that they yep. were not. It's that's the first thing they should be talking about. It's the it's many most people's largest retirement asset. Yes. So there's that question. They're not saving or investing in a way that makes sense. And the third mistake is they're using it for other things, some of which may not be bad. My first house was financed from my 401k plan. That was the best non-retirement use of my 401k plan I could have ever imagined. It got me equity and it ended up a house that upon the sale, it helps finance my retirement. So it's not so much hands-off. It's if you're going to use it, make sure you're using it in a way that makes sense from a financial security perspective. 
a lot of people, good meeting. I got to borrow to send my kid to school. Well, you got to realize if you're doing that, it's a noble uh, motive, but you're hurting yourself. And then your, uh, your children may end up taking care of you. Well, I mean, a lot of people used to joke, my retirement plan are my kids. That's my oh. retirement plan. Yeah. So I think people make those three fundamental mistakes. You can't blame them. I mean, we can't be in the blame the victim business. Um, they're trying to do the best they can, but we have to equip them not to make those kinds of mistakes. And one good thing about Social Security is it kind of protects you against yourself. Those dollars come out of your paycheck. You have no voice in it. Anyway, say, that sounds like big brother to me. Well, call it what you want. Without that, people would be asked on their own. Give me an example. Disability insurance. How many people have their own private disability insurance? Very few. No one wants to buy that, right? Social Security does it for you. It takes it out of your paycheck. So there's a role for social insurance to, um, some people call it compulsory. It is, but it's to protect you against yourself. And that's its historical role. And it's interesting because I have a conversation with my son about, um, oh, I could, I could do better if I just took the money and invested it. Yes. Did the calculations and, and I know I can do better. And I just, I don't have a quick comeback for that, but I know it's wrong. <laughs> no, not is wrong, but it's probably narrowly defined as do better. I can do better when I look at my retirement benefit for Social Security, but there's a survivor benefit. There's a yeah. disability benefit. The other problem people have is I'm throwing this money away. I'm never going to be disabled. How do you know? It's insurance, right? When you insure your house against the fire, do you wish you had the fire so that the money got paid? No, it's insurance. So uh, when you say I can do better, you got to do better, not just retirement. You got to factor in what kind of life insurance policy would you need and a disability policy. And you put those three together. I defy anyone other than maybe very wealthy people right. to say on my own, I could get a better deal. And that's only considering the individual too. It's a family insurance Great point, program. great point. And um, Robert Ball used to always call that. It's America's family protection plan. Yeah. Um, so it's questionable of, uh, but the old um, adage when people were talking about privatizing it, they would say, you're on your own. So we would say that's the yo-yo approach to retirement, right? You're on your own. Oh, I'm sorry. Yo-yo. Yeah. Right. Is that is that what we are as a country? On the other hand, people against it say it's collectivism. This is a foreign idea, social insurance. It's one step short of socialism. The history of social insurance is it's the alternative to socialism. It's a uniquely American alternative, not just American, German, other, but people again, they just fall for these uh, phrases that, oh, that sounds right to me. It's not the right way to look at it. No. And the media could help us with this. Yes. Yes. They, uh, we used to have legendary reporters who covered it in depth and they knew what they were writing about. There are a few of them left. And that's Mary Beth Beth Franklin is great. Uh, Remember the late Robert pair. He would make front page on Medicare. He would write about it in the way that would make front page. Yeah. Um, we've lost a lot of legends in the, in the press and we're not replacing them, uh, unfortunately, with the same caliber. Yeah. Um, we often hear how important it is to delay claiming Social Security for as long as you can. Um, what are some of the circumstances that you believe justify not delaying and what circumstances uh, should people just find a way around, even though it may feel like claiming is is needed? It's basically, what do you say to someone who is just going to claim at 62, no matter what? Yep. On our website, we have a video called It Pays to Wait, and it addresses this. And I think of a rather entertaining style. So I would encourage people to look at the video. Um, I'm reluctant to offer any one-size-fits-all prescriptions because right. we're all different. Obviously, if you have a cash crunch in your life and you can't survive without Social Security at 62, you have no option. So, yeah, that's your situation. But if you have any alternative sources of income that you can Uh use, 
realize every year you delay, your benefit's going to go up about 8% a year. Think of an investment where you could get 8% risk-free. It's unheard of, right? Plus cost of living adjustments. Right. So make it your last resort if you positively have to, but try to extend it at all costs. Try to at least get to what's called the normal retirement age. Now, for most people today, it's 66. For younger people, it'll go to 67. One of the things we're concerned about, people glibly say, let's just raise the retirement age. I can work till I'm 70. Well, maybe you can. But remember the group I was talking about who are in jobs that they can all, you want to ask um, a woman who does uh, a hotel room cleaning to work until 70. You want to ask a nurse in a long-term care facility who's lifting 300 pound equipment. Yeah, or construction I mean, we got to think of other people. Yeah. The, the physical labor fields where, well, some of them are disabled actually because of what. Yes. Yes. So. So we glibly say, well, if I can do it, everybody can do it. Well, guess what? Yeah. Uh, it's not, then other, the other myth is we're all living longer. No, we're not. Life expectancy gains are concentrated at the upper end of the income spectrum. That gets For back. the rest of us, yeah. it's going down. So again, a glib statement, we're all living longer. Well, we're not. That's a racial, ethnic, uh, economic indicator it's it's not true for yes yes but again some people believe it and they'll never disbelieve it because they figure well and i know that i've heard it so many times it must be true yeah so for retirees with uh working children if things stay the way they are currently will their children receive benefits that they are paying into right now in the same way that their parents are They'll be receiving benefits the same way. That's the question. Yeah. Again, if Congress does nothing, and by the way, Congress will do something. They're not going to oh, let this happen. If they don't, today's workers will get between 75 and 80% of what their parents got. But uh, no one thinks that Congress will let it go. But the next moment of truth is 2034. And that could change. Every year they change the date. But uh, no one thinks that's going to, my view is let's not wait. Let's do it sooner rather it meaning let's put social security on a, a strong long-term path sooner rather than later. But Tip O'Neill once said something that's been so misinterpreted. He once said, social security is the third rail of politics. That's a misquote. He said, cutting social security is the third world, third rail of politics. Wow. Addressing it is responsibility. So even a a, a well-known phrase like that has been misinterpreted. But politicians are afraid of Social Security. It's amazing. Which is odd. It's because it's so across the board by party, by age of the support that the program has. I know. I I look at campaign data. I look at campaign materials. So many don't even mention Social Or they mention it in a meaningless way. I will preserve it. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> well, thanks. Yeah, we're gonna, but tell us how. What do you think of the 2021 uh, Social Security bill that was just introduced by? Don Larson is one Larson. of the stalwarts. He understands the program. Uh, he's committed to acting in advance. He has great support in the House. Could this pass the Senate today? No. So something's got to give. Um, but, you know, uh, I don't want to get into the, weeds of Congress, but they can't act quickly on Social Security because the reconciliation process does not permit Social Security legislation to go through it. So it has to be done bipartisan. It can't be done the way a lot of other things are being done. So uh, we have to come to grips with it. And the longer we wait, the harder it gets. Yeah. You've also served as an informal advisor to many national, state, and local campaigns, such as a presidential primary campaign for Senator Hillary Clinton and the presidential general election campaign for Barack Obama. And I don't want to get political, but in general, what are your biggest takeaways from being involved in those national campaigns? Oh, well, first of all, because I'm, I'm a 
political science major. To me, it's like I'm a junkie. I love it. I can't get enough of it. Yeah. Uh, and I'm a practitioner. I, I love policy, but policy c- comes from elections. So, but to get attention to those issues, we were always competing with other things. So as a result, if you go back to the 20, 2008 campaign, 2012, 2016, uh, and even 2020, Social Security was not uh, high up on the list of what the candidates were talking about, with the exception, I have to admit it, uh, President Trump in 2016, unlike all the rest of these Republicans, I pledge to you, I will not cut Social Security and Medicare. He got it. He got it. He knew this was a winning issue. Yeah. Who would have figured, right? Yeah. And up until a little bit of a lapse, he was true to his word. The lapse was a big one. He wanted to suspend paying into Social Security permanently. And we're like, wait a minute. That changes the program. It's no longer social insurance. So uh, we actually got very active. Again, we weren't opposing or supporting. We were explaining what does this mean? What does it do to the program? And I think uh, people came to their senses. This is unrealistic. Yeah. Well, and now we're getting closer and closer to this this deadline, 2033 or whatever it is. But I mean, we've carried on since 1983 Bipartisan Budget Act. And that's amazing. And it lasted that long. But um, yes. However, Bob Ball wrote a book on that. And he said, this cannot be the model for making Social Security in the future. A commission is an abdication. Congress needs to do it through the congressional process. Mm -hmm. The commission was an 11th hour. Ronald Reagan was terrified. The Democrats were terrified. So they punted. And that's not, Robert Ball regretted it. This is not the way to make policy. We have to do it through the normal legislative process, not through a commission. But the rate we're going, a commission may end up being the only way to do it. Yeah. Um, We've been talking quite a while here. I just have, I have more questions, but what advice would you give to financial professionals providing retirement planning for their, their clients. That's who I work with a lot. Yeah. It goes back to what I said earlier, uh, just the facts really present, prevent your clients with facts and don't take the easy way out, which is to dismiss social security. I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, you owe it to your clients to be realistic. Now you might say, look, it's unrealistic for me to say they'll get a hundred percent of current scheduled benefits. Okay. Why don't you give people scenarios and you can even give them three. Give them one scenario where there's no Social Security, one scenario where it's 100% of today's law, and one scenario in the middle. So they can at least look at and play what if. To me, that would be more responsible than saying, let's do the plan without Social Security. Uh, To me, that's just irresponsible. And there's so many technological, you know, the software that we have to analyze those very things is right there. You can't. It is, but. Um, a lot of it is mind boggling. It's for financial planners. It's great. But for the average person, whoo. No, not uh, the average person. Yeah. They need help. They need help. Yeah, they need help. That's- but you're right. There's no uh, reason why you can't have an accurate projection of Social Security based on your assumptions. You got to put assumptions in. And, you know, you're saying garbage in, garbage out. So yeah. Could, the best thing a planner can do is help the client put in realistic assumptions. How much will my pay go up? When do I think I'll retire? What my family composition will be like? I mean, the old joke is, I'll give you a perfect financial plan if you tell me the date you're going to die. Well, obviously, no one's going to have perfection, but you need uh, you know, reasonable and realistic inputs. Yes. And that's something when we do um, social security analyses is that people underestimate their life expectancy and you need to a lot of the software just assumes age 100 just to protect people from themselves. But um, And I had a rule of thumb. Again, I'm, I'm, rule of thumbs bother me, but sometimes you have to. I used to tell everybody, you use the 80% rule. When you're 60, you're really 48. And you probably look 48. You probably feel 48. Look at par- pictures of your parents at that age. They look so much older than you. The good news is you're younger than you think. The bad news is you have a longer retirement period to fund. Yes. So that's when, ooh, I better rethink this. Yeah. You don't want a plan that works because you die just in time. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So 
let's wrap it up. I just, I just wanted to give you the chance if you had the ability and power to do so, what realistic changes would you make to social security and why? There are many, but I would say going back to a short income, let me give you one that I feel is something we let happen and we have to correct it. Social security used to have a minimum benefit. No matter how little you made or how little you worked, if the formula didn't provide a benefit of X dollars, you would get X dollars. That's gone. That withered away. To me, we need to bring that back. And that will provide within Social Security this concept of a short income. No matter how bad things turned out, you're not going to fall below this floor. So if you say to me, there's one thing you can do, what would it be? It would be that. What about, would that still have the 40 quarters to 10 years for having worked? Well, you have to vest. That's the vesting requirement. So you've got to at least be in the program. But once that happens, using 35 years of earnings, um, for a lot of people, a lot of those years are so low, in some cases, zero years. Yeah, You need an alternative to the formula that says below this dollar amount, you will never go. And to me, that will alleviate uh, poverty, particularly uh, for millions, not of only today, but future beneficiaries, knowing they've got this floor below which they can't fall. Yeah. Last question. What is something that you can share that would surprise our listeners? That can be professional or personal, whatever you want to say. Something surprising. Something surprising. Okay. You probably detected from my voice that I'm a New Yorker. <laughs> But I root for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Uh oh. <laughs> I am a Dodger fanatic. Okay. We did not win the World Series this year, but wait till next year. That's interesting. Well, thank you so much. Let's state your email address one more time. Yes, Martha, first, thank you again for the opportunity. Uh, I'm open to hear from all of you. It's W A R N O N E at N A S I dot org. And please go on our website, sign up on the website. You'll get a monthly newsletter from us. that will keep you up to date on everything going on in social insurance. It always has a feedback uh, opportunity too. Uh, we want to interact more with people uh, in all uh, ways of life, all professions. So we relish uh, that type of feedback. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Martha. I appreciate it.